Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for the joy of the resurrection and for the assurance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray that day by day we may move in the blessed assurance of victory and the confidence that in Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors. Bless and prosper us Protect us and cause thy face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 22. And our subject the resurrection of the dead. First Corinthians fifteen, twelve through twenty two. Now Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The doctrine of the resurrection is basic to the Christian faith and central to the creed. When we turn to the creeds, we find it emphasized above anything else, perhaps. In the Apostles' Creed, we read that we, affirming our faith in Jesus Christ, declare that the third day he rose again from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In the Nicene Creed, we declare, I believe, that on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The word that is used is specifically resurrection, not immortality. Very commonly today in churches, we are told that the Christian belief in immortality was vindicated by Easter, and the doctrine of immortality is preached again and again. This is not biblical. The Bible does not declare the immortality of the soul. The word immortality is used only a very few times in Scripture. In Romans 2.7, 1 Corinthians 15.53 and 54, 1 Timothy 1.17 and 6.16 and 2 Timothy 1.10. In those verses alone are the words immortal and immortality used. It is primarily used with reference to God. And St. Paul tells us, for example, that God only hath immortality, dwelling in light unapproachable. Immortality is an attribute of God. 
the only reference to man made is the statement by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54 when Paul declares that this mortal shall put on immortality. In other words, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we who are mortal, we who are born to die, whose soul and body alike have mortality, put on immortality. This, then, is not our natural attribute. It is the act of God. Why the distinction? The distinction is basic to the whole Bible. The whole of paganism, past and present, has affirmed the immortality of the soul. This doctrine means that the soul is divine or potentially divine and therefore it has eternal life as a part of its being, as a part of its nature. According to all paganism, whether we go to the primitive tribes with their animism or to the more sophisticated philosophies, man therefore has two aspects to his being, the one immortal, his soul, and the other mortal, his body. And his body is therefore destined to change and decay. It is going to perish. It is going to be finished forever. But the soul, by nature immortal, is destined to live. Therefore, evil does not belong to the soul. The soul suffers only because it is imprisoned within body, matter, which in itself is seen sometimes as the principle of evil. Out of this position, which is basic to all paganism, two kinds of consequences flow. The first is asceticism. In asceticism, a person believes that the only way he can make progress is to free himself progressively from the body and from bodily appetites. And the way to virtue is to renounce these bodily appetites and to become more and more spiritually minded, to become more and more centered on the things of the spirit. He thereby forsakes that which is mortal in himself, supposedly, for that which is immortal and becomes more and more divine as he purges out the dross of mortality, the flesh, from his being. This is asceticism, which is very powerful in all paganism. We have only to look, for example, to India to see its prevalence, but it has appeared in virtually every pagan culture. Whenever we find asceticism and ascetic practices within the church, it is a sign of the pagan influence, particularly the Greek influence, and most specifically the Neoplatonic philosophy. The other aspect of this pagan feeling that the soul is immortal and the body has no destiny but decay is to remove the body from the realm of moral value. And the body is treated as a matter of moral indifference and therefore total license with regard to the body becomes permissible. For example, in the Corinthian letters, Paul deals with some of the moral problems in the Corinthian church among Greek converts. And one of the things that appears is that fornication was not considered by them to be a sin in any degree, and this we find commonly in many pagan cultures. Nothing that pertained to the body was a sin. Socrates, for example, could consider himself to be, as it were, the voice of God and the incarnation virtually of God. 
and the great moral arbiter of his age. <clears throat> but Socrates, at one and the same time, could indulge not only in homosexual practices, but could indulge in them publicly. Anything he did with the body had nothing to do with morality. It was a matter of total moral indifference to him because the body did not belong to the realm of the spirit and the spirit was the realm of immortality and the realm of that which was important which dealt with moral values so that you find in paganism a total indifference to moral values as far as the body and material life is concerned. Now against both these opinions the Bible from start to finish stands resolutely opposed. Man was created body and soul. His soul is not immortal. It was a creation of God together with his body. Body and soul, God created man to be wholly good. Man fell by his sin, by his rebellion against God, by his desire to make himself his own God, so that man, body and soul, apart from Christ, is fallen and in sin, totally depraved. In Jesus Christ, man is redeemed, body and soul. Jesus Christ manifested this victory as very man of very man by destroying the power of sin spiritually, by destroying the power of death materially, by opening up righteousness and everlasting life to those who are members of him so that in Jesus Christ we have the assurance of victory over the power of sin and death. We are redeemed, body and soul. And this is the significance of the doctrine of the resurrection. In our scripture, Paul speaks to the Corinthians concerning their faith. And he says to those who say, oh, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But of course, this is not for us. We can look forward to the immortality of the soul, but the body, that is finished forever. When it dies, it is dead forever. And St. Paul declared that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is inseparably linked with the resurrection of all believers. That if Christ is risen, then believers shall rise. If believers are not to have the resurrection of the dead as their inheritance, then Christ is not risen. The link is that inseparable in Scripture, in all the promises of God. Moreover, he declared, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is in vain. We are of all men most miserable. Because we are creatures, body and soul. And without the resurrection, we are doomed. There is no hope for us. Furthermore, Paul declared, contrary to all of paganism, it is not flesh that is sinful. Jesus Christ did not condemn sinful flesh, but sin in the flesh. So that when we are in Christ, we are regenerated. Our salvation is spiritual and material. We are not perfectly saved from sin in this life because our sanctification is not complete. At death it is completed by the grace of God so that we enter into heaven perfectly sanctified. 
at the general resurrection, our body is resurrected and given perfection throughout all eternity. Jesus Christ, therefore, as the second Adam, has opened up for his members a glorious destiny. The curse is removed from body and soul in time, in part, and in eternity in all its fullness. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paganism saw as man's problem change and decay. The Bible sees as man's problem sin. And death is the consequence of sin. All paganism without exception because it sees change and decay as the problem is perpetually concerned with arresting history with bringing history to a stop with creating the perfect social order. And whether it be the civilization of ancient Egypt and of the pharaohs or the civilization of Marxism the idea is to end history to bring it to a halt because change is what they fear. But the Bible sees change not as something to be feared but something which progressively unveils God's work and brings us one step closer to his ultimate triumph. The problem of history is not change, but sin. We can understand the significance of the doctrine of resurrection, of the resurrection, by looking at its consequences in the early church. The early church, because it believed in the resurrection, faced the world with confidence. It was not afraid of change and decay. Others, as they saw Rome fall, were filled with horror. To them, there was no future, no hope. But men like Salvian the Presbyter could see the fall of Rome coming and say, it has to come. And let us welcome it. Because the ground has to be cleared, judgment must come because God is God. And the future is not in the hands of Rome, but of God. Moreover, by the doctrine of the resurrection, the Christians could view this world as God's world. This is my Father's world. As a result, science only truly developed and flourished in Christian civilization. In every other civilization, science has gone so far and no further because in every other civilization, this world, the body, the material world, is depreciated, hated, and despised. And it is no accident that in Christianity alone, as science had an unimpeded growth and it will perish ultimately under any other kind of civilization because every other civilization hates ultimately this material world, hates change and tries to create a final order which will destroy the world. Among the early church fathers, Tertullian is often accused of having the most Greek influence in his thinking and of ascetic tendencies. To a measure, this is true. But I think we can appreciate the extent to which, even in a man whose thinking was at some points defective, the doctrine of the resurrection gave a power and a breadth by examining his thinking. 
Tertullian said emphatically, no one can be a Christian without this doctrine. The doctrine of the resurrection, Tertullian declared, is the Christian's trust, his hope, his confidence. Moreover, Tertullian declared, this doctrine is the logical conclusion of the doctrine of creation. God, having created all things wholly good, is now in process of redeeming the whole creation, and his redemption of us is a total redemption, body and soul. Therefore, we can face the world with confidence that all things shall be put under the feet of Christ, be placed under his dominion. And as Tertullian pointed out, the pagans hated the body. He declared, is not their burden from beginning and everywhere an invective against the flesh? Moreover, he said, they dislike the whole doctrine of creation and resurrection. And they fought against it because it placed man firmly under God. If God created us body and soul, and if God redeems us body and soul and we have the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection at the end in and through him, then man is completely under the government of God. And this the pagans could not accept. And so St. Paul, as St. Uh, Tertullian said after St. Paul, they will not hear this doctrine. And Tertullian went on to cite the things they believed. They will believe in reincarnation, the transmigration of souls. They will believe in the immortality of the soul. They will follow every kind of cult, no matter how ridiculous. And he said some of them will turn vegetarians because having accepted some of these doctrines, they are afraid they may be eating their grandmother who was reincarnated as a cow. And he went on and listed all these beliefs, and I'm citing one of the points he made. And he said, there is no end to the absurdity of these people. But, and I quote, but if a Christian promises the return of a man from a man, and the very actual Gaius, a common Roman name, from Gaius, the cry of the people will be to have him stoned. They will not even so much as grant him a hearing. Unquote. They were ready to believe in any absurdity, as he said. Because as long as it was the immortality of the soul, it was they who were divine. The only form in which they would consider the doctrine of the resurrection was in the one other form that exists outside of the Bible, the Egyptian. Well, the resurrection of the body is not a resurrection, but the immortal soul, according to Egyptian religion, immortalizes the body. In other words, the man being a god makes his body a part of the god, and so saves himself totally, body and soul. But to believe in creation and the resurrection that it is the grace of God. This they would not accept. Let a man but preach it, he said, and they will have him stoned. They will not even so much as grant him a hearing. Because it tells them they are not gods. They are sinners who are under judgment. And therefore, there is no hope for them apart from Jesus Christ. Can you understand, therefore, why it is that the Easter message is gradually being destroyed and subverted from the doctrine of the resurrection to the doctrine of the immortality of the soul? 
from a doctrine that places man firmly under God to one that makes him his own God? Moreover, said Tertullian, this doctrine tells us that man is the sinner, not the body. And the body, having been created wholly good by God, is destined to become again wholly good in the resurrection. And it becomes very greatly good in our redemption. It is the purpose of God, said Tertullian, quoting, to clear the gold of our flesh from all the taint by purging the original substance of its dross. Unquote. Notice the language. The gold of our flesh. Only a Christian can truly enjoy his body and soul. He knows it to be a gift from God. And that life itself is the grace and the gift of God. A man is to enjoy himself under God and to praise him for his goodness. Hence it is that the Apostles' Creed twice speaks of the doctrine. First in speaking of Christ that he rose again from the dead. And that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And then again in the Nicene Creed even more emphatically because the joy of the church grew as they came to understand the meaning of this doctrine more. For in the Nicene Creed after speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the creed concludes. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thou hast separated us unto thyself in Jesus Christ, that thou hast given us so glorious a destiny we thank thee that in Christ we are heirs of the grace of life, called to serve thee and to enjoy thee, and to enjoy life, body and soul, in Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the glorious destiny of the resurrection. And we praise thee, our God, for so glorious a provision for us in time and in eternity, in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Um, I'm a little confused. We believe in the resurrection, but when we die, do we immediately then go to heaven? Yes. And yes. then what about at the end where there's, you know, when everybody's supposed to go to heaven? This, this is kind of confusing. Yes. Now, first of all, there are two states of the believer after death. First is the period in heaven when our souls go to be with the Lord, when at the point of death our soul is resurrected and we go to heaven. Then at the end of the world there is the general resurrection of the dead. When the new creation is ushered in, a physical creation, and as resurrected bodies, soul and body united, we dwell eternally there in a physical existence in a perfect physical existence. Well, uh, one of the things that was uh, confusing is that um, we were reading in uh, Matthew 20, 
kingdom, there, uh, neither in heaven nor in the new creation is there marriage or giving in marriage or generation. This is a part of this life. But it doesn't mean that the life is not physical. It transcends anything we know. So that Paul said, just as it is hard to tell from a seed what the tree is going to be like if you don't know the tree, so the body is planted as it were a seed, and in the eternal kingdom there it is, but we cannot imagine because it is beyond our imagination. It would be like trying to describe color to a blind man because it staggers the imagination to try to comprehend a physical life without any of the limitations that our physical life has today. Yeah. Yes, it's in this chapter, uh, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Yes. Uh, don't most Yes, most churches today preach immortality of the soul. This has steadily infiltrated the churches. It is nothing but Greek paganism. There is scarcely a church where this is not preached. But this is paganism. It is paganism. Ours is the doctrine of the resurrection. Yes. And don't they also preach that, uh, that, that stems are all the golden and wonder and all these, all these things yes. that people enjoy in life? Right. Uh, they, uh, many of the churches, uh, because they are tainted with this asceticism, uh, decry healthy, normal pleasures. There's no harm in being beautiful, and there's a lot of advantage. There is no harm in being well-dressed, and a great deal of advantage. Now, the text that is often used is from Peter, and it's well to look at that, because I've had this thrown at me so many times by people who are shocked that I tell them there is no harm in such things. First Peter 3. And many a woman has uh, felt that she's had an obligation virtually to be plain and to decry jewelry because of this passage and the way it's been interpreted to her. 1 Peter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, conversation there is in the old sense of general behavior and conduct, including speech. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and a wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. For after this manner in the old time the holy woman also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, and so on. Now we are told this is against adornment, so that uh, women shouldn't uh, have jewelry or uh, anything special in the way of hairdos or clothing. Well, this is totally misreading the text. What Paul is saying is this. Your confidence, your trust, is not to be in appearance, but in 
a heart that is at peace with God and a conduct that is in terms of the word of God. This is your truest jewelry and your truest adornment so that it's a false confidence to feel that you're going to get by in terms of the appearance. When your conduct as a wife and your uh, inner disposition are totally false. Now, he's not speaking against uh, attractive clothing or jewelry. What he is condemning is the misuse of them, that these things take the place of a good conscience towards God. There's a world of difference between saying a thing is to be abolished or a thing is to be used in its place. And over and over again, the Bible speaks of the good things of life, of jewelry, of land, of possessions, of material goods, as a blessing from the Lord. Yes? Uh, who is this? The communists. Oh, the communists. They, they, uh, the ones that I've known now, they don't, uh, Yes, communism is dialectical, and it is dialectical materialism, but basically it is hostile to matter, and it hates the fact that matter perishes. So it is a system which tries to bring an end to history. Now, one of the things, for example, in the Soviet Union that a great deal of money has been expended on is to try to do away with death. And Stalin, in particular, uh, poured vast sums of money into research to destroy aging and death because he could not accept the fact and uh, did not want to die, of course. And this has not ceased. It is still going on. It is because they basically hate matter. They don't like the fact of change, of decay. They cannot accept reality. Now, when you cannot accept something, you have two courses uh, of action. First is to, uh, to say it doesn't matter by neglecting it, and the other by abusing it. One is the ascetic way and the other is the way of total immoralism. And you find both very commonly practiced in uh, radical circles. Well, that brings up the point uh, uh, about, did uh, you see it in the paper, the fellow left a fund of $200,000 for anybody who is a soul? Yes. yes, it's been in the papers lately. It's going to be quite a legal battle so that by the time they're through fighting for it and win, there won't be anything. Yes.
and anything that is not conformable to it, we are in rebellion against, even though it may still have dominion over us. So we are progressively moving in terms of one thing. We want to conform ourselves to Christ. And this is a sign that it is his life in us. It is his spirit in us that is operative. And therefore, we are his. And once saved, always saved. It cannot be lost. Yes. Um, my little boy asked me a question that I know what, know what SOS is for, and I said, We don't save our soul. Now, when did that originate? And how did you come to that? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be the general use of the word soul? It was very common in England to say this was a village of so many souls. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it would be that in perfect Yes. Well, there you have an older usage of the word soul. And in the Bible, of course, we are told that when God created man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him, he made him a living soul. So that we are living souls. And... uh, It's a Christian usage there, yes. It's an old-fashioned usage that has unfortunately disappeared. In the course, it's three dots and three dashes, and it's a very simple thing to remember. I imagine that the symbols happen to be S-O-S-O-S-O-S-O-S-O. And I don't think that it has any implication beyond totally 
unprepared to meet this type of subversive thinking. And what you need is a uh, radical reconstruction of education from uh, the ground up. And, well, consider, for example, the average <coughs> clergyman today. His education all the way through college is very defective. He hasn't had much Christianity. And if he has, it hasn't been too good. Because, first of all, in the public schools, he doesn't get anything but subversion. In many of the parochial schools, what he is getting is not good doctrine. Then he goes to seminary, finally. And there's scarcely an adequate seminary in the country. And in three years' time, he is supposed to learn enough to counteract a lifetime of false teaching. And what he gets never challenges what he's gotten here for. So he goes out, a good man often, with the best of intentions, and he has no awareness of what he is preaching. Um, they're not geared to apologetics at all. Right? No. Isn't this what we're getting? And you have to define this word from the yeah. I'm sure I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But isn't that what we're getting right along? Is studying apologetics, right? Yes. How, it, it has to be. Yes. Right. Apologetics is the defense and proclamation of the faith as against other systems. In apologetics, what you do is to point out why our position holds water and the others do not so that you are both expounding your position and uh, pointing out how the other position has no ground. It seems to be related to the word apology, and it basically is when you trace it back to its origins, but it is totally different. Apologetics is not uh, apologizing for our faith, but pointing out how no other faith holds water or can stand so that what you have been getting is apologetics and some systematic theology as well. It has to be that. In other words, you would preach from the pulpit that way? Exactly. Exactly. Today, the preaching you get from the pulpit is by and large entertainment or little inspirational pep talks. The pep talk and psychological self-help are 99% of the preaching, whether it's conservative or liberal. And all of this has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. And so people are unprepared. Now, I have seen the kind of study material that communists are given before they are taken into the party here in the United States. I have seen uh, copies of Lenin's works as they were handed, and Lenin was a very voluminous writer. Now, it wasn't his entire works, but certain of the works of Marx and certain of the works of Lenin that were given to a long Charmin, whose ability to read was not too great. But he had to sit down and puzzle out Marx and Lenin, and Marx is as uh, difficult a writer as you can find because he's so stupid, and yet uses such uh, involved language as though he were talking about something profound when he really has nothing to say, so he makes a very painful reading. Now, this longshoreman had to sit down and master those books and take an examination before a group of men before he could join the party. What happened when he mastered that? He could come up against college students, and because he had been drilled and re-drilled in certain areas, he could follow them because he had a systematic body of ideas. And if you just began with a materialistic premise that he was given, everything else would follow. And all he had to do was to run across any of these students who had materialistic premises or environmental premises, and he could start pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, and he had them in a corner, simply because he had a systematic body of doctrine, and he knew that it was a system. 
and that anyone who started with any of those premises he could make them go to his conclusion. Now, we don't even require that of the clergy. Is it any wonder that we are in a bad way? We don't require this kind of training of any person who's a citizen. Is it any wonder that we're in a bad way? And until we get back a sense of systematics and apologetics into education, we're going to continue to be putty in the, in the hands of anyone who wants to move us around. Yes? I uh, have a feeling that um, the passage in the um, um, Sermon on the Mount where we're uh, cautioned to love our enemies uh, is being misused uh, by a lot of people. Yes. Uh, it seems to be contrary to uh, that uh, which we're taught that uh, we should not be yoked with unbelievers. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of an answer do you give when uh, somebody says, well, you, you've got to accept the communists because they are your enemy and you have to love them. And yep. you have to pray for them. And uh, you can't despitefully use them. <clears throat> yes, and the answer to that is that Scripture also says uh, that for such a one we are not even to pray, and do not I hate them that hate thee, yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred. In other words, if they're going to quote Bible, let them quote the whole of it, not out of context. What they are doing is to take something completely out of context. They're not understanding the context, first of all, that statement in the Sermon on the Mount, because that statement simply says that in the situation where a person is compelled to go with someone a mile, he is to go twain in a situation of compulsion, then love of enemies and love of neighbor is defined as fulfilling the second table of the law. Not to kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. That is the fulfilling of the law to love our neighbor and our enemy to respect their right to life, property, home, reputation, and word, thought, and deed. So they cannot take the Bible and misuse it that way and tell them, you are twisting scripture. You're just picking and choosing things you like. Where is that scripture that you Let's see, that's in the Psalms. Uh, there are several passages like that. I'll uh, check them out and give you a list of them if you'll remind me. Yes. Uh, one thing that confuses or bothers me, and that is, so many times when a person shows irritability or, uh, or annoyance, somebody says, uh uh, think positively. Now, this thing you positive is a matter of viewpoint, isn't it? And just, I wish you'd comment on that. I mean, you might think positively from one viewpoint and be pretty negative from another. Right. If you think positively that you're going to succeed, you're going to go ahead if your car is out of gas. You're uh, uh, not thinking very realistically. And this power of positive thinking is really nonsense. And it simply doesn't work. It leads people into a dead end. For everyone who says it works, there are thousands for whom it does not work. I think one of the funniest books I've ever read, or a couple of books, are Norman Vincent Peale's books. The absurdities he goes into there. He actually says that if you think positively, you'll catch more fish. Uh, how in the world is your mind going to affect the fish when uh, you're thinking positively? But he affirms that. Now, this is to believe in magic, that you're positive thinking is going to govern reality. And this is nonsense. And it does well at times to think negatively. I wish a lot more parents did a little negative thinking where their children are concerned. Because we'd have a lot better situation with regard to the younger generation. There's just a little too much positive thinking in our day and age. Yes. Um, what do you say to the very successful men who attributed, who attributed all their success to the fact that they think positively? Yes. 
there are some such men. You can only wait because sooner or later their positive thinking isn't going to work, and then you make your witness. Yes? I know that a lot of people do have the fear of being caught on in, uh, back in some of our private schools, Yes, there are some people in Unity who are interested in the private school movement. There are also Christian scientists who are uh, conservatives. This is very illogical on the part of both of them. If they were faithful to their premises, they would not be in involved in such things. Let's hope they'll become more inconsistent. <laughs> yes. In your book on Van Hill, by what standard then? in your remarks today, you take a more positive attitude about the discipline of apologetics than you and some few others do more than most pastors and ministers that I have. Is this because of their, the lack of their study of the discipline or is it just a Right. Van Hill <coughs> makes the point that apologetics will show to every other system that they have absolutely no ground to stand on. That if the non-Christian and the non-biblically minded Christian were consistent with their thinking, they would have to admit they cannot think, that they cannot have science, they cannot have knowledge about anything. And so, Van Hill says, push them to their presuppositions. And he says, of course, they will fight this because they do not want epistemological self-consciousness. Yes. You know, as far as fishing goes, I always wonder why the Orientals caught more fish, and they finally figured it out. They have their line in the water. You know? Yes. Right. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I copied this paragraph from uh, uh, some readings in the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, and thought uh, you might comment on it. I hope I can read it well. From whom, in particular? Uh, well, this is the, uh, the, the first uh, series, volume five. Uh, you don't remember who the author of the statement uh, Petri. Was, was the, uh, oh, the editor. the editor. Oh, it's an editorial comment. Right. Mm -hmm. Whosoever, therefore, in God's most providential ordering, are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, I say not, even although not yet born again, but even although not yet born again at all, are already children of God, and absolutely cannot perish. From him, therefore, is given also perseverance and good, even to the end. For it is not given, save to those who shall not perish, since they who do not uh, persevere shall perish. I speak thus of those who are predestinated to the kingdom of God, whose number is so certain that one can neither be added to them nor taken from them, not of those who, when he had announced and spoken, were multiplied beyond number. For they may be said to be called, but not chosen, because they are not called according to the purpose. Well, that's a good uh, statement of the doctrine, and it is one that you'll find over and over again in the Apostolic Fathers, and very well substantiated from the Scriptures. So he's really summarizing what a great many of them have said. And... The uh, Council of Jerusalem, according to the book of Acts, said, Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the earth world, so that God from all eternity, as a wise master builder, not only foreknew, but foreordained all things that should come to pass. Now, uh, from the human perspective, of course, we are, have the freedom of creatures. In fact, there is no freedom possible without predestination. And the matter of perseverance, yes. You know who the uh, true believers are by, in terms of perseverance. Because many people come in and crowd in outwardly because they find it attractive and advantageous to be a Christian. I've known a number of such, and the Bible gives us a classic example in Demas. Uh, now, Demas was an associate of Paul through the years as a fellow missionary. 
And yet, Demas, because he was not conspicuous as Paul was, was never persecuted or harmed. And when the real persecution broke out and there was a possibility of him being touched, he just walked out. And Paul sadly said, Demas hath forsaken me. So Demas was one of the apostolic company and yet obviously not regenerate. I've seen men come into the church who never seem to have any problem. Oh yes, I believe the whole Bible from cover to cover and don't see why any sensible man doesn't. Well, everything was going along well with them. God had blessed them uh, on every side. Uh, looked like a good world. No reason why he shouldn't believe it. But the minute they are put under test and every man's faith shall be tested, then the reality of their faith appears. And when he was tested, he couldn't get out of the church fast enough. So the matter of perseverance is simply this, the test of faith. Is it real or is it a matter of appearances? So that many people are in the church simply for advantage. Now, this becomes less and less true as the dividing line appears, as there is a sharp issue uh, between those who are standing for the faith and those who are not. But every faith, sooner or later, is tested. And that test reveals whether the man has the faith within as well as outwardly. Because a man may grow up and just accept these things and say, why not? It's the thing that makes sense to me. It's all I've known most of my life. But the reality is, is he going to live in terms of it under stress? Is he going to make a stand in terms of it? Does he begin to separate himself from his family or his friends in terms of the faith? Now, he can be weak and frail and sinful, but if this becomes increasingly the governing principle, then you can say, indeed, he is one of the elect. Because this is what governs his life. But for these who fall by the wayside, it isn't what governed their life. It was just convenient for them to be there. 